John was on Match.com, and he was a young professional in the Atlanta area. And there was a woman on Match who saw John's profile, and she winked at him, you know, kind of made a little outreach towards him, like, hey, I'm interested in you. And so John got that message from her, and uh, she reached back out to him. The woman said, I should have known he was a, I should have known that this was going to be a problem because his screen name on Match was Ivy League alum. But anyway, so she winked at him, he reached back out to her, and he responded to her by describing a little bit about himself, his height, his weight, what he does for working out, and a little bit of like some career and interest things. And then he asked her a couple questions, some very pointed questions, wanted to know a little bit about her background, what kind of products she likes to use, and he wanted to know what she does to stay in shape. Uh, apparently, John had been disappointed before by women who were misrepresenting what they look like based on their match profile. And so he was, you know, kind of reaching out to, to make sure. Well, she wasn't into it. She responded to him after she saw his kind of request. She responded to him with basically like a no thanks. And if the story had ended there, it would have been fine. But John chose at that moment to sort of like retaliate and give a message back to this woman. And this is what he said because she published it for all to see. He said, I think you forgot how this works. You hit on me, and therefore have to impress me and pass my criteria and standards, not vice versa. Six pictures of just your head and your inability to answer a simple question lets me know one thing. You are not in shape. I am a trainer on the side. In fact, I'm heading to the gym in 26 minutes. I love that he's really got it down of when he's going. So next time you meet a guy of my caliber, <laughs> instead of trying to turn it around, just get to the gym. I will even give you one free training session so you don't blow it with the next 8.9 on hot or not. Ivy League grad, Mensa member, can bench, squat, leg press, 1,200 pounds, has had lunch with the Secretary of Defense, drives a Beamer convertible, has an MBA from the top school in the country, has been in 14 major motion pictures, was in Jezebel's best dress, etc. Oh, that is right. There aren't any more of those. So, maybe like... You, you, maybe you're like me, I, I saw that and I was like, what a jerk this guy is. Like, oh man, this guy is the worst. And maybe some of you are like, I've met that guy on Match.com plenty of times. There's loads of John Fitzgerald pages on it, right, maybe. Um, but I just thought, what a horrible human being. I see why the website named him this, you know, a terrible person. And then I thought, um, I think actually I'm just like him. Not that I have the credentials he has, because he's clearly very impressive. <laughs> uh, but I'm just like him in that I want to justify myself. And that's really what he was doing. You could see he's trying to defend himself, but he goes way too far to justifying his existence. This is why I matter. This is why I'm valuable. This is the standard that is out there, and look at all the ways that I've checked all the boxes. And I just thought, man, I've done that too. Whatever society has decided, you know, education, looks, humor, whatever it is, I've tried to go down those roads like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do this, this, and this. I'm going to get look a certain way and act a certain way. And, and I've tried to prove my worth. And really, our whole culture is set up for you to try to prove your worth, right? It starts as a, as a child. We call it a report card. 
where someone gives you this piece of paper that explains your worth in letter form. You are this many A's or this many B's or C's or whatever, right? Like you get a report card and we start very early on measuring people up, applying a criteria and saying you need to measure up to these things. And that doesn't get much better as you get older. You don't get report cards, you get performance reviews, 360 performance reviews. You get um, employee of the quarter or not. You get, you know, that office or not. You get a certain money or education or do I have that job or do I look a certain way. Um, and social media did not create this dynamic but has not helped it. Social media is sort of the king of the humble brag. Oh, you guys, this just happened to work. It's not me. It's my team. They're so awesome. You know, that kind of thing. We've kind of developed a whole culture around look a certain way, act a certain way, appear to be something. And the truth is John Fitzgerald Page is not some horrible outlier. He is us. And I think that's why we hate him so much. We're just like, oh, man, this guy, he is what the system is designed to produce. Set a bar and then jump over it repeatedly. And I don't know about you, but I find that system to be exhausting. It's exhausting to have to be, to have to always measure up, to be a certain way, to look a certain way, to act a certain way, to say the right thing, say this, not that, to, to be under performance pressure almost at all times, at home, in, in, in dating, in, uh, at work, at, at school. It, it's exhausting, and, 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 and there's no, it, it's not surprising to me that depression is so high. It's not surprising to me that we're anxious and fearful people because we're all living underneath that system that says, if you're going to be worth it, you're going to have to do these things. And honestly, the church has not made that better for people over the years. We've added one more system that we're not measuring up to. We've called it sin, and we've said, man, you're not doing this either. And no wonder people don't want to go to church. They're like, I don't want to go there again and hear how terrible I am again. I already, I already feel that way. Like, why do I need to go to church and be reminded of one more way that I'm not measuring up? But the truth is, that whole system is the opposite of Christianity. It's, that whole system is, is set up, do this and you'll be good enough. And Christianity doesn't work that way. Um, Christianity says, no, actually, you're already good enough. You're already worth it. You were already loved. You don't have to go clean yourself up to make yourself lovable to God. You were already loved. It's as if God gave you an A for the class before you even took the class. And he started right up front and said, no, no, actually, I do love you, and, and you're worth it. And, and something about that kind of system where we're given the A before we take the class from God, something about that kind of messes with us. I think if we're honest, we would say, I don't really like that system. I like to know the rules so I can game them. I want to know the system so I can work my angles. I would like to rely on my ability or talent or whatever to try to work the, the angles. And God comes along and blows that whole thing up and says, no, there are no angles to work here. It's not how it's going to work. And it bothers us. It bothers me that crappy people get the love of God. It bothers me that awesome people have to suffer. It, something about the system seems broken. And yet what I want to tell you this morning and what I want us to look at in the scripture is, that broken system, or what seems like a broken system, isn't broken at all. It's actually wonderfully good news, and it's liberating to us to know that God actually has made the first move towards us, and it saves us from this system of having to constantly measure up. We've done this series, we're wrapping it up today, it's called The Main Thing. We looked at week one, we said, 
the main thing in life is a who, not a what. It's a person. It is Jesus Christ. It is not all the other things we're striving after. So let's look at him. Let's know him. Let's follow him. Let's serve him. Let's honor him. And, and then let's look at what he says life is about because he created us. And if you're going to know how you are made, look, look at what your creator said about you. And so we've been looking at what does Jesus say about us? What does he say is important? What does he say is the main thing? And today I want to talk about really the main thing of Christianity, uh, Christianity is about Christ. It's in the word, right? The Christ is in there. But what Christianity offers is this idea of grace. C.S. Lewis was at a conference um, decades ago. He was at this conference, and, and they, had, uh, they were having a sort of a comparative religion conversation in, in one room. So people were talking about what is unique about Christianity. And they said, well, maybe the incarnation that God became man. And they said, actually, no, other religions have an incarnation. That's not so unusual. Okay, that's not unique about Christianity. Maybe the resurrection that, that you know, Jesus dies, he comes back from the dead. And they're like, actually, there are some other religions in the history of the world that have resurrection in them also. So that's not unique. And they were trying to figure it out. And C.S. Lewis walked into the room and he said, what's this rumpus all about? And the people said, hey, we're trying to figure out what is unique about Christianity. What is its unique contribution to the world? And, and Lewis said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace. It's the idea of unmerited favor. And they started thinking about it and talking amongst themselves, and they, they concluded, yeah, he, he's right. This is the unique thing about Christianity. It is not a system where you have to earn it. It is not like uh, the, the, the pillars of Islam where you like check these boxes, do these things, and then Allah is pleased with you. It is not the eightfold path of Buddhism. It is not Hinduism where you have to earn enough karma and come back as a better person and just keep working on it. It is not the Judaic system with all the laws and you gotta check all the boxes and, 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 and do all the laws and do it well. It is none of those things. It is not earning it. It is God gave you the A. Now go live like it. God loved you before before you were even ready for that, before you even knew what a hard spot you were in. And so I want us to look at what I think is one of the greatest texts of grace in the New Testament. Um, and it's from the book of Ephesians. Uh, and this text that we're going to look at really, um, maybe it won't hit you this way as, as we read it, but this text really changed a lot of things in the world. Because Martin Luther and some of the reformers were really blown away by, the, by these verses that we're going to read today. And they were in the context of the Catholic Church in the 1500s. And in the Catholic Church, they had gotten into a system of you've got to earn it, do enough things, buy your relatives out of purgatory, that kind of thing. They like had the whole system. And these words from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 kind of blew that all up. Paul writes a letter to the church in Ephesus, which is in western Turkey, just south of Istanbul. And he, he writes a letter there. And he's telling them how to be followers of Jesus. And he's giving them some different sort of doctrine, some teaching of the church. And then he gives some practical things. But in the front of this letter, he unpacks this idea of grace a little bit for us. And I want us to read, in, read it. And I want to kind of, we're going to do 10 verses because I want us to get like the, the fuller context of it. Um, and it's from uh, Ephesians chapter 2. And we will, we will put it up on the screen here for you. Let's start with verse 1. He says this. And you, talking to the church there, he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All right, what is Paul saying? He says, you were dead in your sins. Um, he's describing not just those people in that church, but us too, before we knew Christ. 
Here's what it was like. It was like the walking dead. You're following your passions. You're following um, the, your, your sins. It, back up verse. Take that one off the screen. Yeah, 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 that's good. Leave it there. Um, you're, you're fo- you were following all of your passions. Uh, that was our condition at some point. We all followed our hearts, and whenever you really follow your heart like that, it ends badly. I know it's very popular in our culture in America to say, follow your heart, follow your passion, but uh, Paul would say that leads to slavery and addiction eventually. If you cast off all restraints and go, I'm free to do whatever, whenever. If you follow whatever, whenever, historically for nations, tribes, cultures, and individuals, that ends badly when we do that, when we don't have any constraints on us. And that's the way we were, Paul says. Um, and, and he describes it as death. You're the walking dead. This is what it was like for us. And it was, it was very dark, and, and, and our God is our stomach, Paul says in, in, another, in another letter. Our God is our stomach, and, and he's straight up. This is who we were. But look at verse 4. It says this, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Look at how he starts that. He says, but God being rich in mercy. So it's dark, it's dark. You were in your sins. You were messed up. You had blown it. But God did something. Man, God intervened in your life. He made a change there. It wasn't you were blowing it and then you decided to stop blowing it one day. It was you were blowing it, you were a mess, you were broken, but God intervened. He did his thing. Why? Because of the great love with which he loved it, because of his grace, because of his mercy, not because you're so awesome. That's what he's telling us. Out of his love, his grace, he makes the first move towards us. He intervenes. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. And this is so different than any other worldview. All the worldviews say you can earn this. You make that money, get that job, get the girl, get the guy. We have this idea that uh, this worldview that if I if I earn enough, if I just do it, it it'll it'll uh, it'll come to me, and I'll get what's coming to me. And it's this whole system of performance. And God comes along, and grace crashes in on all of that, and says, "Stop doing that. You're never going to be enough. You're never going to earn it." Stop striving. Stop trying, trying to do that. It's not going to work because if you're going to be in a relationship with a holy, perfect God, you're not going to ever like, quite get that right. You're never going to be holy enough. You're never going to be perfect enough to be in a relationship with him. He's got to make the, the effort and extend it towards us. I've heard people compare it to like, you know, jumping across the Grand Canyon. Like you may be a great long jumper and you may be able to jump 10 feet and I can only jump six feet and someone else jumps four feet. But at the end of the day, none of us are getting across the Grand Canyon. Like, great, you got 10 feet out there before you fell. Someone's going to have to make a bridge to you, and this is what Christ does on the cross. This is what grace does. It says, man, you're not going to make it. I will make it for you. This is what Jesus does for us. So because he gives us this grace, um, let me give you a few thoughts about what that does. Number one, grace transforms us. Let me, let me ask you a question. Does knowing the rules about something really change your life? Like, being informed of how you're blowing it, does that help? I, that hasn't been my experience. Like, have you ever been, like, told? Like, you just got told? Like, someone just told you? 
like you didn't know what's up and they told you what's up, that doesn't change your life. That irritates you. But I haven't seen a lot of people be like, oh man, I got told and it was so good for me. Like most of the time that knowing the rules, knowing more rules, knowing more ways that you're blowing it, um, that might challenge you, but it, it typically doesn't transform you. It's not what changes you. It's actually grace that transforms you when you have an encounter with it. Have you ever read the, the book uh, Les Miserables by Victor Hugo? Or, bonus here, just have seen the Broadway show maybe, like the musical? Maybe we're not, maybe we don't read old French novels, but like, um, so the, the, the story of Les Mis is uh, such a powerful lesson of grace. I got to see the musical. I was a, did church music in college, and um, I got to see the musical in 1996, and I went to see it, and I, and I really enjoyed it. I actually went with my wife on our, that was our very first date, was going to see Les Mis. Now, that's like a dating faux pas, because I set that bar way too high for a first date. Like, we should have gone to Shoney's, y'all, and then it would have been way easier, but like, once you start with like Broadway show, like, where do you go from there, right? So, whatever, it worked. Um, so we went and saw Les Mis, and it was a really good show. Um, and then uh, afterwards, um, you know, I was just thinking about it, and I was like, man, this is really, really powerful. I just, I, I loved it. I loved the singing. I loved the music. It was just really well done. Well, two years ago, I got to see it again. Uh, we took our kids, and we had an opportunity to go to England, and we went to London, and we saw the show in the West End of London. And I was like, kids, you're going to love this. And we had learned the music and whatever. And so it was their first show they'd ever seen, first live show. And it was uh, extremely profound. It's just really good, and it was different this time, seeing it 20 years later, um, and I couldn't hold back crying throughout the show, and it's not because the music was so good, but it was, and it's not because the singing was so good, even though it was, um, it's just that there's so much grace in that show, and 40-something-year-old me values that in a way that 20-something-year-old me didn't, and I just get it now more, and I want it more. There's a scene in, in the show, if you know the, the novel or the, the, the Broadway show, there's the main character, Jean Valjean, is a criminal, and he's done a bunch of bad stuff, and he gets out of jail, and he goes, and he spends one night in the home of a priest, and the priest puts him up, and the next morning, that character, Jean Valjean, he gets up, and he steals the candlesticks from the priest, because they're valuable. He steals them, puts them in his bag, and he sneaks out of the house, and he leaves, and he goes, and gets, he gets caught by the police. And the police capture him, trying to bring him to justice. They bring him back to the house of the priest. And they said, this man stole from you. He stole these candlesticks. And the priest recognized what's going on here, that if he turns this guy in and says, yeah, those are mine. He's a terrible person. This guy, that Jean Valjean is going to just go to jail forever. And so what the priest says is, oh, you took the candlesticks. You were supposed to take the silverware as well. Here it is. Why don't you take that? I, these were a gift for you. And the police were like, that's not stolen? And the priest was like, no, he, he can have them. It's no problem. And so the police sort of drop their case against Jean Valjean. And the priest pulls him aside. And it's a powerful scene. And he says to him, um, use this second chance that you've been given in your life to, uh, to become a better man. And he does. And for the rest of the, uh, rest of the, the show, rest of the storyline, he is... Um, He's living up to the grace that he was given, and he is a transformed person. Um, and it wasn't because he got justice. It wasn't because he got what he deserved because he should have gone to jail. It was because he got grace, because he was so loved. And, and someone 
brought this radical grace into his life, and it changed him. This is us. We are caught in the act, and the grace of God changes us, and the grace of Jesus covers over us. And when you get that, it moves you. And if you haven't experienced that, I want you to think about it. Like, think about what God has done for you. That should move you. That should compel you to do something with it. So it transforms us. Number two, the grace of God calms us. Ephesians 2, listen to these, these verses, because these are ones that really rocked Martin Luther uh, at the Protestant Reformation. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is the rest of that section of Ephesians 2. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are God's workmanship, he says. Look at the beginning of that. For by grace you've been saved through faith. He's like, this isn't something you did. This isn't your awesomeness added up to then God saved you. It is God saved you in spite of your lack of awesomeness. And that's a powerful thing. That's why he says there's no works there. There's no boasting. There's no like, didn't I do, you know, of course God loves me because I'm just so great. And Paul's writing to people, some of which may have been Jews, and the Jews are used to keep these laws and God will be pleased with you. And Paul's coming in and blowing that whole thing up and saying that's not how it works. It's, you can't keep these laws perfectly. There's too many of them. You're never going to be able to keep them perfectly. Here's the solution, God's love and grace towards you. And what does that do for us? It should, it should calm us. It should calm us. We shouldn't have to be so anxious because we're not striving all the time. We're not trying to win all the things. We can be non-anxious people. Our social media feed feeds anxiety. It's designed to make us anxious. And if you want to get anxious about stuff, we could probably all do it, right? Depending on what you got going on right now. You can get anxious about your job. I'll get anxious about my job, about this church. I'll get anxious about my family, um, the economy, uh, our president, North Korea, Congress, climate change, systemic oppression. Like, pick one. There's like all sorts of things. If you want to get anxious, there's all sorts of things that you could be anxious about. And there's so many voices yelling at you, telling you that you need to be anxious and be upset and you need to care. Um, it's, just, it's like megaphones in your ear at, at all times, it seems like. I, I saw this study called the uh, More in Common Study, and uh, I, I looked it up. I had heard about it on a podcast, and I looked it up. And um, basically, they said, like, there's per- 6% of Americans are, like, the hardcore, like, conservative right, and then 8% are the hardcore, like, left. Um, and he said, and, and everyone else in between they refer to as the exhausted majority. And I was like, yes, those are my people. That is, that is us, the exhausted majority. I'm just tired of people yelling in my ears from all sides. Like, this wears you out. Um, and, and, you know, it's just so much of this, like, anxiousness that we're, that we're, we're told to have. Um, and, I, and the grace of God frees us from the game, from the system, and frees us to be more non-anxious people. Now, I get it. You want to throw a flag here, and I understand. You're going to say, Chris, you are easy for you to be non-anxious. You are a Caucasian, uh, cisgendered, heterosexual. Uh, like, life's good for you in America, right? Like, and I get that people want to say that. Um, but here's the thing. I think the grace of God's for all of us. It's the great leveler. None of us are worthy, 
and all of us have access to it. No matter race or economic status or anything, it is there for, for all of us all over the world. We all get to inherit heaven. So let's not freak out um, because when we do, it betrays our true feelings about what we think is really going on here. Let's keep the big picture in focus. The grace of God should calm us and we can be a non-anxious presence in the world. And I don't know about you, but as I read media and and culture, as I'm sort of looking at the tea leaves out there, I'm like, where are the non-anxious people? Because I want to join their tribe. (laughs) I I, I think this is what we're called to be, to be a non-anxious people um, in the midst of challenge. Christians have actually always been that. When the plagues were hitting the Roman empires, the Christians were the non-anxious people who weren't freaking out and running to the hills like everybody else was. We need more of that. I heard a story of a ship. There was a ship out at sea and there was a lot of bad weather and like the ship's rocking around and there's a bunch of guys that are working down in the engine room and in the engine room, you know, there's oil flying everywhere in Greece and it's like really a hard situation and they're feeling the ship rocking all over the place and they're like, we're gonna die. This is horrible. I don't know, the storm or whatever we're in out there, this is gonna be the end. And one, one of the crew members in the engine room snuck away and he worked his way up the ship and he climbed up and he went all the way up to the bridge to see the captain. And after he saw the captain, he came all the way back down into the engine room and he walks back into the engine room and he's like guys we're going to be okay we're going to be okay and they're all like you know things are moving all about and they're like we're not going to be okay um how do you know we're going to be okay and 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 this crew member says guys I've, I've been to the bridge and I saw the captain and he's smiling and Christians need to be the kind of people who go like no no man like I've been to the bridge and the captain's smiling, like it's, it's going to be okay. I mean, Christians would say like, I've read the end of the book and we win, like it's good. Like it, 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 there, there's a hope here. There is a, there is a future. And, and so we are called to be a calm, non-anxious presence in a very anxious world. And then finally this, uh, the grace of God moves us to action. I think there's a tension around grace because if you say uh, God loves you, God's grace is for you, he loves you as you are, not as you should be, that kind of thing, then um, I, think, I think preachers worry about this maybe more than other people, but maybe there's just this sense of like, um, well, then who's going to do anything? Like, why should I do anything? Like, you already just told me it's awesome, like, that God loves me, and so if God loves me, if we're good, like, I'm just going to go do whatever, because um, we're already like good, right? Like I don't need to earn anything. And it's true, you don't need to earn it. Uh, but the response to the grace of God should be to, if we really understand it, should could compel us to serve and to move and to do something. Listen to the end of that verse again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. And then he says, for we are his workmanship. That, wor- that word workmanship in Greek is the Greek word poema, which means which where we get our word poetry. So we are God's poetry. Don't you love that verse? It's good, right? We are God's poetry created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the grace of God isn't like, yay, I get it, and no one else gets it, and just sorry for them. The grace of God is, you have been loved, now, now walk out in this, do something. Don't just sit there. Like, actually serve people, actually seek lost people, like we talked about a few weeks ago. Maybe the, our response to the grace of God should be, okay, then God has loved me this way. What does that love require of me? What does the grace of God require of me? How can I extend that to others? How can I extend the grace of God to others while still holding on to the truth? Because sometimes it feels like grace and truth are intention. 
You heard of a, you ever heard of a truth bomb? And people drop a truth bomb, you know, and we go, oh man, they dropped the truth bomb on me. Like, whoa, we're dropping bombs over here, truth bombs. We carpet bomb truth bombs. I don't know. There's lots of truth bombs out there. Um, and that's fine, I guess. But I was wondering what a grace bomb would look like. Could we drop some grace bombs? Maybe we should stop dropping, you know, weapons, any, any, any bombs at all. <laughs> um, but if you had to drop one, let's drop a grace bomb. Maybe, maybe that would be the thing that would actually be helpful. Who do you know in your life that could really use a grace bomb right now? Who do you know that's like blowing it and they just need someone to walk beside them and say like, I see you there. I see that you're hurting um, and I'm, I'm just gonna sit with you, like I'm, I'm with you. And that God can love you anyway um, and God can forgive you. Who is God calling you to extend grace to? I wanna pray as we wrap up here and I want us to think about that. Um, who's God bring to mind right now that needs to know of grace? Or maybe it's you. Maybe you're like, man, I didn't get this. I need to give my life to Christ. I need to be baptized into him and, and follow after him. Maybe that's you. Um, let's, let's close by praying about that. Lord Jesus, I pray that uh, you extend your grace to us. Um, and that we would extend it to others. Right now, God, whoever's in mind that we know, that we're in relationship with, who needs to know the love and grace of God, I pray that um, you give us opportunities for conversation this week. You give us the opportunity to reach out, to, to, uh, to put a hand out and support, uh, to, to be a, a loving, non-anxious presence in someone else's life this week. God, may we fully grasp down to our core your grace. May we fully grasp how much we've actually blown it and, uh, and that we're not perfect. Uh, may we understand that so that we can grow um, and become more like you. In your son's name we pray, amen.